Well, last week we were in, in this Advent series, we're looking at, it's called Christmas in the Old Testament. We're looking at detailed the, uh, prophecies from the Old Testament that speak of not just Jesus' birth, but what Jesus' birth signifies, what it accomplished in the world, the, the, the restoration of all things. And so last week, last week we looked at a prophecy and then we kind of tied it in to the big streams of prophecy throughout the Old Testament. We kind of got in it uh, with a lot of Hebrew and whatnot to show, and the purpose for that was to show that, that, that the, the Old Testament had accurately predicted both the rise of David and his kingdom and his dynasty, accurately predicted the coming of Jesus, who he was, who he would be, what he would do and accomplish, and the Old Testament accurately predicted the church, that all the nations of the world would come and worship Israel's God. All of them were just absurd uh, absurd predictions that all actually came true and those things stacked upon one another show the internal integrity of God's word and that the internal integrity also became history. It became fact. And because that's true, we can trust God's promises that have not come true yet. And that's super important. All of that groundwork laid, uh, really laid groundwork for us to look at this passage today uh, I promise no Hebrew today. <laughs> well, we're going to look at today this promise. Uh, knowing what we now know about the prophetic record, we can know that God's promises are true for us, including this one that we're about to read. So would you please stand as the Lord calls us to worship, or I'm sorry, would you please stand as we read together God's inspired word from Isaiah chapter 25. On this mountain... The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place. As straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Please be seated. I want to read, I want to start by reading to you um, one of the updates that Early Rain put out, uh, I think yesterday. We are, we're 15 hours ahead of Early Rain, we're of Chengdu, China, and so uh, their Sunday morning was yesterday at 5 p.m. our time. 
Uh, and they, let me, they had all planned and they had uh, decided ahead of time that even if this kind of raid had happened and persecution had happened, they would still come to church. <laughs> and this is, let, let me read this. This is, this is a post they put up yesterday and I think, I think there's something that we can learn from it. Uh, this is what they said. According to the command of scripture, today is the Lord's day, a day of worship to God. Even though most of our brothers and sisters are under the supervision and control of community authorities at their homes, and more than a dozen, a dozen brothers, sisters, pastors, and preachers are in prison, those brothers and sisters who can still freely leave their homes uh, went to our church sanctuary in the Jingjiang building as usual to prepare to meet the Lord. The metal gate below the building where the church is was locked and every entrance had many plainclothes officers and SWAT team officers preventing people from entering the church. They took away some of the brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters then conducted a small-scale worship meeting at a nearby park, which was also shut down by police, and police took away more than 30 brothers and sisters. Last night at 11 p.m., police went to the home of a church member to advise him not to go to church the next day. After he refused, They held the church member to the ground and tied his hands behind his back with a rope before taking him to the police station. The police also went to the house of the wife of an elder who was being criminally detained and threatened her, telling her that she was not allowed to open her home for worship gatherings. This is the current situation. And so, Lord, today we worship you in police cars. We worship you in police stations. We worship you in detention centers. We worship you in prisons, and we worship you in homes. We have no other goal except to worship you alone. We ride in buses headed to police stations as though riding down the road to Zion. And for you tell us, Lord, that you are seeking worshipers who will worship you in spirit and in truth. May you be pleased with our worship. We have nothing to offer you but our hearts, and we offer them up sincerely to you now. Wherever I am, whatever I meet, I will follow your will forever. Now, man, I mean, one of the dangers of going to a, a different country or being involved in a church in another country is, is when you come back, the differences that you notice in that church and the church at home can be very stark and you have to be very careful not to uh, make unfair comparisons between the two, right? And so, um, you know, we need to be careful about doing that. But I think there's, there's something that we could learn from the attitude that our brothers and sisters have in China. Why are they like that? Why is it that they knew that by coming to church, they were running the risk of being put in prison, and yet they did it anyways? Why was worship so precious to them? that they, would, they were willing to whisk prison to come and worship God together. I think, you know, as I've been thinking about it this week, really, you know, what's kind of the big difference? It's not, you know, sometimes you think, well, in the, you know, it's because in foreign countries, because of that, there's an absence of material wealth, and in that poverty, all people have left is really Jesus. And that, but that's not true of China. That may be true of Nairobi, but in China, the middle class is... Balling. 
they are. They are, they are the middle class is wealthier than we are here. There are certainly a lot of poor people, but uh, there is every opportunity to join in the prosperity of wealth in China. The difference is, the big difference is, that you, they can't do that and retain their faith because of the culture, because of the pressure, because of uh, there's such a reproach on Christianity that to be a Christian publicly uh, means that you forego being able to contribute, to be able to participate really in culture and in, uh, in, in the mainstream of culture and in the prosperity of it. And because of that, because that aspect of their lives has been separated from their faith, they're less prone, or less prone than we are at least, to hope for and wait for and trust in the wrong things. And because they are trusting in what Jesus is really is promising us, the hope of the gospel, the hope of a new creation, uh, their hope is fervent and their hope is, 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 is powerful. I think we can learn from that. And so this passage that I just read, it's really, uh, it, some people, some theologians call it the Isaiah apocalypse. Really, it's talking about uh, the coming of the Lord and what it is that we are truly waiting for, what it is that we truly are putting our hope in that will not disappoint us, what the eternal things, the things of true value and true beauty and true wealth that God has promised us in Christ. And those things are, quite simply, that we are waiting for the end of sin, the end of death, and the end of suffering forever. That's what that passage says. And so in this Advent season, as we are considering the waiting that we are going through, I want us to consider those things together, that that's what we're waiting for. Those are the things that we hope in. Those are the things that God has promised will sustain us and strengthen us and give us joy even in the midst of this evil age. So that's the big idea of this passage, that in this Advent season, we are to remember that we are waiting for the end of sin, we are waiting for the end of death, and we are waiting for the end of suffering forever. Let's look at that one part at a time. First, uh, we are waiting for the end of sin. Let's talk about the hardest part of what we just read first, okay? Uh, there is an unmistakable passage at the end. The last few verses are talking about God's judgment against sin. Um, and most people, most people, even Christians, don't really have a good idea of what God's judgment really is. I think we have a tendency to believe that God's judgment is basically like rolling in uninvited and interrupting the party and shutting down our fun. But in this age, at least, that's completely opposite of what the judgment of God really is. The judgment of God in this age, as we wait for the coming of Christ, is not coming in and uninvited and shutting down the party. The judgment of God is giving us the party that we want and allowing us to sit in it so that we can experience what it's really like. And that's what's happening in this passage. Look at, look at what it says in verse 10 and 12. Listen. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. 
and he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, cast to the ground, to the dust. Let me slow down a minute here and and show you what's happening in this passage. It talks about Moab. Moab is 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 a... Another country right across the Jordan Valley that was enemies of God, enemies of God's people. They were related to Israel, so they should have known better, but they chose not to. And so Moab is pictured here not as just that people group, but symbolic for all the enemies of God's people, all the people who reject God in one way, shape, or form. Uh, and, And his place... It's his place, it is his, it's his place, it's voluntary, the place where he wants to be. And where is that? The dunghill. Now the literal, literal translation of this is, is it's, it's actually a lot worse. It's the waters of the dung pit. <laughs> Which in an agricultural society, you can kind of guess what that is. There would be like a pond, a pit, where they would throw like refuge and manure from the animals and people and then trample straw in it and that decomposing matter would then form compost for their, uh, for their agriculture. But in the meantime, it was a swamp of awful, nasty mess. And that's the picture of the place that Moab wants to be. Now, I want you to notice this. This is super important. In this passage, where is the hand of God and what is it doing? Is it on Moab, crushing them down into the pit? It's not. The hand of God is on Mount Zion and what is it doing? It's resting. And what does that mean? That means there's another agency that's doing the trampling and I think what it's pointing out to us is that Moab or the those who reject God are being trampled down under the weight of their own sin and sin in the world and just feeling the weight of it. And the context of that is, is, the, is, is this feast. In the midst of that, God is promising this feast for all people, this banner of God's invitation to come out of that chosen place and enter into this feast that God has provided for all people is the standing context of that. And what is the response? What is the response of Moab? Feeling the weight and trampled under the weight of sin in the world and their own sin, seeing the banner of God's free forgiveness in the feast that's offered. Does Moab repent? Does Moab turn? Does Moab turn like the son, the prodigal son, who finds himself eating pig food in basically the same situation and says to himself, I'm going to go back to my father's house and before he can even get his I'm so very sorry speech out, the father comes running to him and smothers him with kisses. That's not the response. The response is like Michael Phelps. He snaps on his swim cap and his goggles and he jumps in and spreads himself out in the dung pit and starts swimming. 
which is a picture. It's a picture of the swimmer with great skill swimming in that mess, doubling down and saying, I got this. I don't need God. I don't need his favors. I can do this on my own. That is a picture of God's judgment in the world and the response of the world to God's banner of invitation to the feast, which shows us this picture of the, really the deeper essence of sin is pride. That When given the choice between the feast and being given the feast at the expense of the righteousness or the, the sacrifice of someone else and the, being given freely the righteousness of someone else and working and swimming for our own merit shows that we choose, we choose the dunghill. We choose the dung pit. And oftentimes in the midst of our swimming, being angry at God, that he's not helping us get the thing that we so desperately want. And so look, in the midst of that, what it's talking about, it shows us that, that God's judgment in this age is his mercy. He will allow you to swim in, or until you get tired to show you the foolishness and the folly of seeking salvation and hope and joy and beauty in anything other than the living God. I have a pastor friend of mine who says, eventually everybody gets sick of themselves. (laughs) Man, is that true. And when that happens, that is God's kindness. That is those moments where God's grace can then penetrate through that hard shell and say, hey, this is a dung pit. This is a feast. We want you to come to the feast. And so... This is God's mercy. What we're waiting for is a day when God is going to put an end to the dung pit altogether. And unfortunately, that also means an end to the committed swimmers. But it remains God's mercy. There will come a time when only the feast will remain, and that is good news for us. That is good news for us. Do you know why? Because even there are certain times, especially when I'm angry, lonely, overtired, anxious, or afraid, at certain times I will wake up in the morning and take a look at that dung pit and want to snap on my swimming cap and think that a quick dip is exactly what I need. And what we're waiting for is the day when that is gone. Even the option to do that is gone. The sin and the shame and the guilt that we carry from our dips in the pool will be erased and taken away. That's what talk, when we talk about being confirmed in ethical righteousness, which is the thing that gets me most excited about heaven, means that we will never be tempted to jump in the dung pit again. It won't even be there for us to do it. The second thing, the second thing we are waiting for is the end of death itself. On March 15th, 1980, my dad woke me up early before school to tell me that my mom had died 
during the night. Something that we knew was coming, sort of. I was 15. I didn't really understand that. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to be brave. And so when I, I remember thinking to myself, the way I'm going to be brave is that when we go to the funeral, when I walk up to my mother's casket and I see her body in the casket, I am not going to cry. Because that's what you do. That's how you be brave. That's how you be strong. And that's what you're supposed to be. To not let tragedy affect you. And ironically, for the next 23 years, in and out of drug addiction and depression, I congratulated myself for being so strong and so brave and for never allowing my mother's death to affect me. And the reality was, just beneath the surface, it colored every decision I made. It was a constant specter in my view. It informed every decision that I made. And at the same time, for at least 23 years, I had no idea that it had that kind of effect on me. Now, why am I telling you this story? It's because death does that to everyone. Just, not just the death of loved ones, but our experience of death in the world. Death in biblical sense is greater than just our physical death. In the biblical sense, death is really a picture of just the slow disintegration of all things. Everything is falling apart. And we're all experiencing it. There is a sense of brokenness in ourselves and brokenness in the world uh, that, that causes us this constant level of anxiety and fear and suffering and pain. You start to feel it when you're a kid and you notice that things are broken and then you go through your first real experience with death and it affects you. And then it start, can, from that point forward, it continues to grow and is ever-present. Can't always see it. It's not a conscious thought. But just under, just under our conscious thought, we've noticed that ahead looms our own personal death coming and it sticks in our brains like a song that you can't get out of your head just below the level of conscious thought. And it colors everything we do It affects every decision that we make. And it causes us... It causes us to reach for almost anything that will offer temporary safety, security, or temporary relenting of the underlying pain. The Bible says it's like a covering that covers everything. Listen, listen to verse 7 eight, or verse 7. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. The veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. That might mean, it's hard to say, but it might mean, it may be talking about a woven web, like a spider web, that covers all the earth and then that's true then it means that we are 
in cocoons that we have been overtaken by spiders and wrapped in silk and we are experiencing the world in that deadened sense of, of, of seeing through the cocoon that covers our eyes and the fear and, 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 and the anxiety of being in that position. And there's truth in that. Whether you want to admit that coming judgment is true or not, everyone feels and experiences that at some level. But it's probably more likely it's giving the picture of a veil, a veil of mourning, a thick black veil that would be worn by a widow after the, after the death of her husband. And we are looking at the world. Our senses are dulled uh, we're, as we look through this veil at the world around us and the reality that we live in. And because of that, we can't see straight and we're afraid. And that's what causes us to reach out for things that will offer temporary satisfaction in the midst of that lament. This touches on another, vo- another verse that we've studied recently from Hebrews chapter 2 where it talks about everyone being... It says all of those, all of us who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The covering is synonymous with the fear of death and the effects that it brings and the way that it colors everything that we see and all the decisions that we make. Uh, That ever-present sense of the looming shadow, the ever-present sense that everything is just falling apart that will cause us to grab hold of anything that can offer happiness or shelter from the sadness and fear right now. No matter how destructive those temporary things may be, no matter how enslaving they may become, no matter how much it may hurt the people that we love the most. Even when it means that we disregard the clear will of God and refuse to honor him or give him thanks. And then the world that we live in is perfectly engineered to offer up countless quick, refreshing dips in the dung pit that promise to fix us. But they lead to more pain. And so Advent, when we talk about Advent, what it means is we are waiting for the day when God eliminates not just death, not just our physical death, but all of the effects of death that spread out across the world. All the fear and anxiety, all the pain, all the suffering that we feel constantly under the shadow of death. And this is the sense of hopelessness and futility that it adds to our lives. God is going to take all of that away. He is going to swallow that up. There is, at the feast that he promises, everything will effortlessly hold together. There's a, our, uh, our Pastor Ted at our 
our sending church uh, from Escondido, who always would talk about this story, this about especially at Christmas dinner, when he would be gathered around uh, Christmas dinner, all of his family and loved ones would be gathered around him, and everything would be just perfect. He would be so full of like love for his children and the grandchildren, and everybody was there. And then in that very moment, his heart would ache and be just twisted because he knew that all of it was going to be undone and that he was going to be separated from those people that he desperately loved so much. And now you can add to that picture the, uh, just the, the idea, the reality of drama in families and the tendency that we have to fight with and attack the ones that we love the very most. And, and sometimes the, the, the way that that just bubbles up and comes out of us All of that is going to be taken away and instead we are going to be in a feast that is characterized by never-ending communal joy. No more fighting, no more attacking, no more sense that this will all come undone. All of the joy that we experience when we are surrounded in those perfect, sublime moments in life with our loved ones times a hundred in a perfect way that we can't even imagine right now, that is the second thing that we are waiting for. The feast is never-ending communal joy. And the third thing, the last thing that we are waiting for is the end of suffering forever. Well, the end of sin and the end of death necessarily means that we look forward to the end of suffering forever. And the question is, how does God do that? How does God, how is God going to put an end to this suffering and death that we are so long experienced and in a way that's forever? The forever in this verse, it's not the typical word for forever. It's really a word that means enduring eternal joy. The feast, the forever uh, that we're being saved into is not a vacuous forever, but a forever that is characterized by never-ending joy. How does he do that? Well, here's the first clue. First clue is it says, on this mountain, God will swallow up death. The mountain is Jerusalem, Mount Zion. Second clue is what Jesus says at the Last Supper. Listen to this. He says, it says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now listen again to our passage. Listen to what the feast is. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. 
of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined, and he will swallow up death on this mountain, the covering that is cast over the peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. He will swallow up death forever. That's what he's looking at. That's what he was talking about in the Last Supper, except for Jesus. What happened next? He had to go to the mountain. And on that mountain, there was another cup waiting for him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed to the Father. He said, he said, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Meaning that Jesus on the cross drank from the cup of God's wrath for us to purchase for us our entrance to that feast so that we could drink together with him the best wine that's ever been made in plenty and riches and perfection forever. That's what Jesus purchased for us on the cross. And it's why Jesus is the only offer on the table for salvation because no one else has done that. No one else has satisfied the wrath of God. No one else has sacrificed himself for his people. No one else is even able to offer perfect righteousness and the forgiveness of sins. And for everyone who trusts in what Jesus has done, he gives us his peace and his presence. Look at, listen to this. Listen to this. This is God's attitude to us towards us as we enter in to the heavenly kingdom. This is uh, verses 8. It says, He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. Sometimes my kids are so distraught and so upset and so traumatized by something that's happened that there's no consoling them. There's no reasoning with them. The only thing I can do is sit with them, put them on my lap, wipe their tears away, and reassure them that everything is going to be okay. And that is the picture that God chose to give us in this passage. That we, his kids, who are coming out of the real trauma of a world of sin and death, as we enter into the heavenly kingdom, God's attitude towards us, no matter what's happened here, is he's going to sit us on his lap and he's going to care for us with his presence and he's going to wipe our tears away and he's going to assure us that everything's going to be okay. And in doing that, he'll be telling us the truth because nothing bad will ever happen again. And from that point forward, we will enjoy his presence. His presence with us. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So I want to encourage us. Let's be people who wait for and hope in these things. And if we do that, we won't be disappointed. Let's wait for and hope for the end of sin, for the end of death, 
and for the end of suffering forever because that is God's promise to us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, the world is a churning machine that is tempting us to hope in our feelings. in our subjective ideas of how reality should be or we hope would be, that those things are poison. And in our anger, in our unforgiveness, in our resentment, in our fear, we are tempted, Lord, to turn to those things and to wait for those things and to hope on those things that will only bring more destruction and sadness. And we pray, Lord that you would help us to see the beauty of Jesus, what he's fulfilled for us on the cross, the cup of your wrath that he drank for us so that we would never have to drink it. Jesus was judged on the cross. We were judged with him so that we will never, ever face judgment from God. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see what Jesus has purchased for us so that we would look forward and wait and set all of our hope on the right things, on the true things, on the eternal things that will never fade. And I pray that in that and through that, Lord, you would help us to burn with the Holy Spirit in torches of beauty and light to show the world of your goodness and your beauty and your truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.